when you don't have what you need, you don't you don't even have a, a vision for a life. Because all you're doing is all you can do is think about today, this moment. Can I get something? Am I going to be able to eat today? You know, trying to go to school and people shooting on the block. How does one operate like that? Truly, how does one flourish? How does one dream? What you dreaming about? Because your life is a nightmare. And the lives of probably the generations before you have been too. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Lisa Butler. She is a licensed clinical social worker and was previously my guest on a COVID-19 experience episode. Welcome, Lisa. Hey, Ronit, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good. Thank you. It's really nice to have you here again. When we talk about achieving goals and uh, where someone thinks that their life will go, did you know when you were younger that you were going to be a social worker? Was that something that was ever on your radar? Yeah, I I knew that I was going to be a therapist. I wanted to be a therapist. Mm -hmm. At 16, I was at Hyde Park uh, Magnet High School in Chicago, and I had a, psych- a psychology class. And um, one of the things that we had to do was subscribe to Psychology Today, and um, mm-hmm. I did, um, and had to write reports on different articles that uh, the teacher requested. And after start, when I started reading that magazine um, and thinking about the reasons why people do the things they do, I became fascinated with why people do what they do Mm -hmm. and started looking up other books um, to read uh, about people and their behaviors. So at 16, I knew that I was going to, that I wanted to um, be a therapist for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And did you, did you have a background prior to 16 in your earlier childhood um, that makes sense to you why you were interested in this? Did you have, uh, did you observe things growing up that made you especially interested in why people did things? Yes. (laughs) Um, Can you talk about that a little bit? For sure. So growing up, I, um, my parents were divorced. So basically me and my mom, um, my grandmother who had a big part uh, in raising me, um, I attended a, a church with my mom, really strict Pentecostal um, church on the south side of Chicago. And um, basically in, in that environment, women were always um, the ones who kind of bore the brunt of the rules, right? So no, 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 mm-hmm. no pants, no movies. You can't wear your toes and heels out and shoes, no fingernail polish, mm. no makeup. And for some reason, I was looking around like, what the, what is going on here? I mean, and why is it that we have to, <laughs> the women are so focused yeah. on. And so I knew nothing about feminism or any of that stuff at that point. I didn't hear about feminism literally until I got to, to college, but um mm-hmm. It didn't set right with me. There was something my spirit. And you were raised in it, yeah. though. Like you didn't come to it. You didn't come to it as a teenager. No, you I was, I you was, grew up with it. And this I is was, the seventies, yeah, right? So the, I was four when my mother started going there. So mm-hmm. I, I was I was from from four to eighteen. I was um, in that space, but it, it didn't mm-hmm. it didn't feel right. And I knew I was getting the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When I got grown, <laughs> you knew. But did you did you get to talk about that with your mom? Did she know how you felt? I don't think I talked about it with her. I was so angry with my mother for so long as a teenager. I couldn't stand my mom. I mean, like if she said right, I said left, and a lot of it was because I was Why? because I was so resentful about being in that space and having the mm-hmm. rules come down so hard on me. And um, one of the things that happened was um, I wound up getting pregnant at sixteen. Um, and I realized that my behavior, and when I think about it now, my behavior was so, everything that I did, I did in opposition to her. So like mm-hmm. I was, it was like a, I was walking yeah. around like a big middle finger to my mother all the time and to that, yeah. and to that environment. Yeah. 
And um, mm-hmm. being in that in that church and, and watching how those women gave up their autonomy for this person in the pulpit, to me, something was wrong with that. <laughs> And I didn't understand. So you noticed that right oh away. I mean, you just, yeah. you zeroed in on yeah. it. I was like, what, what mm-hmm. is going on? <laughs> so I never understood that I was super smart as a kid. I mean, as a young woman and intuitive. So I think a part of my thinking about uh, or wanting to be a therapist came from, why would these women give up <laughs> their lives mm. for this person and this church? Why would they give up? their personal freedoms, what's wrong with them and what kind of woman would do that? Mm-hmm. And I began to see, was your father around at he, all my, during this my time? My father popped in and out after, after my, my parents divorced. I, I love, I'm a, I'm a daddy's girl. I love my father. Mm-hmm. So if, if he popped in, I was happy and I was sad when he popped out, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, we, we right. kind of maintained somewhat of a relationship throughout the, his pop outs. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, we, we did, we, we, you know, we would talk, I would, I, I could contact him through people, through folks that I knew who might know where he was, mm. but he represented something so different to me. My dad was very much kind of Renaissance in his thinking. And, um, mm-hmm. he loved that I was smart. He really embraced that. And, um, I think I felt free to say anything to him. Um, mm-hmm. I, when I decided I was going to get birth control pills, I asked him to take me, he took me. Uh, mm-hmm. so my mm-hmm. dad represented something very, very different than, than what my mom represented at that time. Well, it sounds like he kind of represented freedom to you and sort of understanding who you truly were. Yes. Yes. Indeed. So then Lisa, where did you go? you know, where did you go to find uh, peace or any kind of comfort or people like yourself when you're growing up and, you know, your mother and you don't get along and you don't get to see your dad as much as you'd like to. And um, this church is not for you. Where did you find, if you could find that space that teenagers need to kind of be on their own and find themselves? Hmm. So what I, I don't, I don't know that it was a space. Well, maybe it was a space with older women who just kind of were dropped in my life over the course of my, over the course of my life. Like these older black Mm -hmm. women, whether they were teachers, um, my friends, mothers, um, who Mm -hmm. recognized my intellect and embraced it and Mm -hmm. encouraged (laughs) <laughs> and challenged <laughs> me and mm-hmm. um yeah i would say my godmother uh, frankie merton who I, <laughs> I love uh and loved dearly um who was really smart very articulate and i could talk to her all the time and i could see myself in her um mm-hmm. so just just those, I guess, those women kind of, and my best friend Keisha's at the time, her mom, who was a, one of the first African American police officers in Chicago, Flora Wilson. Wow. And she was just a dynamo. And I actually wound up going to Roosevelt University because she went back to school and went there and graduated um, from the specific adult program. And that's the program that I graduated from too. So she had a huge oh, influence on my life. she made a really life. big impression. Yeah, she did. And she was, yeah. you know, normal and wore makeup and, you know, just was, a, and, and was not, did not, <laughs> normal. yeah, just normal. I mean, when, you know, did not feel the need to go to church and smoked her cigarettes and I, I adored her. So you got pregnant at 16. When you mm-hmm. went off, can I call it going off the rails or would you say like, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you can definitely call it that. <laughs> because it was a departure for <laughs> you, right? It was, it, it seems yeah. like it was a departure for you. So w- did you not care at the time that you might get pregnant or did you not know that it could happen? Like what was the thinking that you recall behind that? It wasn't a lot of thinking. There was this older person that I knew, a guy that I had a crush on and um, he was actually a son 
of uh, my god my godmother Frankie her son mm. um and and I knew that I had this crush on him had known him all my since I was like nine mm. and um he clearly was a predator now that I think about it obviously mm. and uh, knew that and took advantage of it and I didn't care I could care less my self-esteem after um a particular incident with me not being able to be in a program that I was invited to be in, uh, in high school, I didn't care. Um, yeah. Can you talk about about that? Like that, that seems like that was an important event. So what was that? Um, so I went to Hyde Park high school in Chicago and was in the magnet program there. And my first year I went in there, I felt powerful. I I knew the work I could do it and I was doing it. Mm -hmm. And I got invited because of my grades, um, to, take a take the PSAT for a program at the University of Chicago uh, for a pilot program they were doing with High Park students. Mm-hmm. And I took the PSAT, scored super high, and got invited to be in this program. All of my friends uh, were also, my, my, my close-knit friends were also invited. And you had to pay $250 for this program. Well, my parents, for whatever reason, um, couldn't come up with the $250. So uh, I was not able to be a part of the program. Mm. And so um, when that happened and all my friends were going to be a part of that program, something inside of me just turned off. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say it did turn back on until I was 30. Wow. <laughs> uh, I just did not care anymore. And I felt like if my parents can't see, you know, the importance of this and can't nurture my intellect um, and don't don't understand it, don't understand what to do with it. Who cares what happened? I don't care anymore. I'm just going to do whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. <laughs> I started hanging out. I mean, you know, cutting school, cutting class. Uh, it was a park across the street from Hyde Park. So I'd be in the park more than I'd actually be in school. <laughs> And um, did your teachers you know, try to find you, or were they surprised? Oh, sure. they, they, they would, you, that was when the when those calls would come to your house. You know, those that automated thing started mm-hmm. with the calls coming when you missed division. Yeah. <laughs> so I would I would time myself, time the calls. I knew what time they were coming, so I would just be at home then to make sure I got the call and my mother didn't get. <laughs> It didn't okay, matter because so- when I got my report card, she would see that you know that I wasn't in school, so mm-hmm. it didn't really matter. But and did she come down like on you? Sure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she came down, but I mean, again, I didn't care. Yeah. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. And this is—it took me so long to be able to talk to people about this part of my life without crying, because that that girl was just completely broken. And it wasn't just um, that. It wasn't just that incident. It was a culmination of things. I think that just at that point, I was like, I don't care anymore. And my life really reflected that. So Do I you, wound up pregnant by this twenty. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I wound up pregnant by this twenty-four-year-old man, and I was I had planned to have an abortion. And my stepmother was going to take me and she was worried and like, you know what? I have to tell your mother because if you die, I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. So she told my mom, my mother, I'm sure was super brokenhearted. I'm an only child. So instead of my mother talking to me about it, she talked to her pastor about it. And he told her that if I had an abortion, he was going to throw her out of church. Mm -hmm. He told me that too. And so here I am 16, almost 17, having to deal with the fact that I'm pregnant, deal with the fact that I'm pregnant by a 23 or 24 year old who's a part of kind of my family in a way, because that's my godmother's son. Mm. Uh, (laughs) And then having to bear the weight of my mother and her, her tie to this church. And so what I decided was, oh, okay, so you're gonna come in here and Make try to make me do something. I'll tell you what, I'll have it, but I promise you, I'm not keeping it. Mm-hmm. And so I looked up adoption agencies. Interview. I, I when I called adoption agencies on my own and decided to go with Lutheran Child and Family Services. Um, 
chose his chose my child's parents and yeah <laughs> so and so when you were carrying your baby uh were you going to school still yeah a transfer at that point you couldn't stay in uh, high school is pregnant. They would send you to an alternative school. Mm-hmm. So I went to an alternative school, not too far from my from my high school. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, even in that school, I was really never in class because the teachers and principals loved me. So they would let me come and work in the office and answer the phones. I had mm-hmm. a particular a teacher there who, I can't think of her name, beautiful Black woman. And she just took this liking to me and for Christmas gave me a fur, like a mink, like little mitt that you put your hands in and, mm-hmm. and the matching ear, ear muffs. <laughs> and they really, those women would talk to me and take me places and buy me. And the other girls wanted to fight me. They're like, uh, why are you getting all this attention? Why are you not in class? <laughs> and it was because these women, and I have no idea, Roni, what that was. <laughs> but they really invested in me. And they were just like, we... I don't know. When I think about that, I'm just like, why me? But Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I wound up staying there. I had my son and then I went back to Hyde Park and graduated on time. So what was that like to give him up for adoption? The hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but the smartest thing I've ever done in my life at the same time. Did did you Um, hesitate? Did you hesitate when you gave birth? Nope. Mm -mm. Nope. Did not hesitate. And funny, interestingly enough, um, the hospital that I had him in was a neighborhood hospital. And um, one of the nurses um, came into my room after he was born. And my mother had stepped out for whatever reason. And she said to me, if you didn't, if you don't want children, perhaps you shouldn't have them. And I remember just being so stunned and hurt by that. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. And I told my mom, and I remember my mother just really having an adverse you know, reaction to that. And I need to say, too, that my mother was not on board with me giving him up for adoption. She wanted me to bring him home. But in my mind, bringing him home would have meant that she would have been primary, the primary caretaker, because obviously I didn't have anything to give him at 17. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't want to do that to her. So I was like, no. Um, I think I I want to I want him to go someplace where he can have two full time parents who are able to give him the life that he deserves. And I really at this you know over the last probably fifteen twenty years I started looking at myself just being a conduit for that for that for, for the for that couple. Mm-hmm. You know that was meant to be. You know mm-hmm. for them. So mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. Um, <clears throat> do you have a relationship with your son at all? No, mm-mm. I just chose them. I didn't want to, I could have kind of, they, at that point, open adoptions were kind of starting mm-hmm. and I, I, I didn't want that. I, I felt like that would be really hard on me to be, you know, a part of his life uh, in that way. So I was like, no, I, I, I would like to, you know, have some decision making as it related to the picking you know the choosing of the parents which i did mm-hmm. and but that was that was as, as much as i as, as i wanted and i think that was a good decision on my part yeah, yeah so you say that that was the hardest decision of your life and when you look back on it now and when you think about your life um did you have any more children i did not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you do you feel like peaceful about what you did do you have any kind of um complicated feelings about it? Nope. Mm-hmm. And, and nope, no complicated feelings about it at all. Did mm-hmm. your, did your baby's father, how, how did that work out? Because he was, he's the God, he's the son of your godmother. So what mm-hmm. was that sort of fallout in that relationship and between the families like, or what is it like now? Oh, that was not good. So uh, when my mother found out who it was, um, she obviously called my godmother and my godmother, um, was upset, uh, seemingly at me more than him, which I, which w- was odd. <laughs> um, I know. And at the same time, it doesn't surprise me. Why? Because I think that that's like a long held kind of behavior toward women that it's sure that it's our fault. Mm-hmm. 
And so um, she kind of, they fell out. Um, My mother um, decided that whatever doctor's appointments and anything that I needed medically, he would pay for out of his pocket Mm -hmm. or she would file statutory rape charges against him. Mm -hmm. And um, so he he paid for it, whatever I needed. Um, And I don't know. I remember not talking. He, he, He had to sign over his parental rights as well. And he did. And I remember um, just being so hurt by the fact that my godmother, you know, was essentially blaming me for the for the for the pregnancy, but also very hurt that um, when we when when it was said that he needed to sign the parent, sign his parental rights away, it was very easy for him to do. And I was just like, whoa. Mm. So yeah, and so it, the relationships. That relationship with my godmother was changed very much by that. But interestingly, interestingly enough, uh, she since passed away, and somehow we got back together. And I think our relationship was very different, uh, closer uh, before she died. I don't know. I went to see her. She was in the hospital, and she looked at me, and she was like, "I am so proud of the woman that you've become. I really am." And that meant means so much to me now. I mean, it meant so much then. Mm-hmm because she has known me all my life, but kind of we went through that thing and then we still were able to kind of maintain um, our relationship and Mm -hmm. its closeness. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you don't see the, you don't see her son anymore, right? He's not in your circles. So no, he actually, he's married. Um, He has three kids. Um. We have talked over the years because our families were so intertwined. So I know his siblings. Um, I know his wife. Not no, no, but you know, she, I, we know who she knows who I am. I know who she is. And he reached out to me a couple years ago and was like, "Do you want to look for our son?" And I was like, "Uh, no." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he seems to have a lot of guilt about it at this mm. point. Interesting. You know, you know, once yeah, and I'm like, if you if you do that, please don't open up the Pandora's box for me because you know, I don't feel that that's right to to our son. You know, I think that's an invasion. If he wants to find us, let him do that. Mm-hmm. I'm a part of the Illinois Adoption Aid, uh, Registry. So if he is interested in finding us, he can. But I don't think it's fair for us to go and disrupt his life like that. It's yeah, uh, interesting around. that he had uh, a, was able to easily sign over his parental rights, but then he's the one who was interested in possibly finding the boy. You know, it's kind of funny yeah. how that switched. You know, you get older and you start thinking about <laughs> things. Yeah. And, and maybe feeling some kind of way about the decisions <laughs> that you made. Yeah. So yeah. you have the baby, you give the baby up for adoption, you are now mm-hmm. still in your late teens, and mm-hmm. you do what? What happens next? I graduate from high school on time. Which and, is amazing. Um, <laughs> like, Yep. Yes, it is. But I, listen, I knew, I, I knew that there was an expectation for that in my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I knew that it, it was no me coming home talking about I wasn't graduating. So yeah, <laughs> I managed to graduate on time. And then I, I, I got accepted to Columbia College. And um, it's, a, it's a, a school here in Chicago, kind of a fine art school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went, went there, <laughs> flunked out. Oh, so about 19 or 20, I'm working in retail and um, decide, oh, I want to be a flight attendant and (laughs) was a flight attendant from 89 to 1999. And did you like it? For the first two years, I probably did. (laughs) (laughs) But then probably maybe, maybe for the first five years. But after that, I started to feel so, I was so angry about being away from home all the time and not feeling fulfilled. And somebody 
two things happened. Somebody gave me a book called Sisters of the Yam by Bell Hooks. Mm-hmm. And I read that book and I never read, uh, read a book quite like that. So I'm going to go back for a minute. When mm-hmm. I was at Columbia, there was a professor, uh, Dr. Sheila Baldwin, who was, uh, I don't know, she taught some kind of black literature class. She introduced me to Toni Morrison. That was the beginning of a life change for me. That was the first time I'd ever heard the word feminism. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was the first time I'd ever heard the word sexism. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was the first time I'd ever heard of the name Toni Morrison. And the first book that we read was Beloved. <laughs> and that book, <laughs> her work, period, completely turned my life, turned my, turned my world around. And it it provided answers for me to some to the to the things that I'd kind of seen growing up in that church and just it really turned my world. So I I needed to say that. So then mm-hmm. I'm I'm flying, somebody gives me a copy of this book, Bell Hooks, who is this? Bell Hooks is this social critic, um uh, scholar who is just amazing and her work on black feminism is life-changing. So I read this mm-hmm. book. This book was about Black women taking care of themselves mentally and emotionally. What? <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> so I read that book and that's when I met Sharon Williams, uh, the, an, a, another flight attendant, but a, an older lady who mentioned to me that there was a program with, with, with teen moms, a uh, group support program at the YWCA and put me in touch with the person who was running the Y. And uh, around 80, well, um, 98, 97, I started volunteering for them. And then that led into me getting a job and taking a $17,000 pay cut to go and work mm-hmm. uh, as a site coordinator for that program. And I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I was more than happy to leave. Is that when you left uh, the airline? Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the job was a master's preferred position. So it required a bachelor's, but they were like, you need a master's too. And another woman, Patricia Washington, um, who was running the program, I said, I don't have a degree. She was like, it doesn't matter. Your heart and soul and your work in this program is outstanding. And whatever I need to do to get you this mm. job, I will do it if you want it. And she did. Mm. Yeah. So would you say that when you got that job, you felt like you were on a track that had meaning for you? Oh, sure. Ronit, I put my heart and soul in that work. I love those girls. Those girls had my home, my cell number. Mm-hmm. They would call me at two and three o'clock in the morning. These are, now these are teen moms from the South side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So the program was really group support. We would take them to different events and expose them to things in the city. Uh, we had a uh, group, um, group support, uh, nights at the at the Y, and on those nights I would have to go into the kitchen and cook dinner for them. And when I got there, they were giving them a whole bunch of frozen pizzas and stuff, and I was like, I'm not giving them mm-hmm. that. So I would be in there cooking, making salad and uh, baking chicken and teaching them how to cook. And a lot of those young women, even when I see them now, I just saw one recently, and she said, Lisa. Remember when you used to cook those meals for us? She was like, I look I look so forward to coming to group, for group, but for food too. <laughs> so, um, uh, but I put my heart and soul into that program mm-hmm. and subsequently uh, created a program called Black Girl Inc. for girls who were not pregnant in Chicago public schools and ran, ran that program as a vendor for, CP, for Chicago public schools for almost 20 years. Oh, wow. That program was amazing. Again, curriculum-based. I really wanted to improve girls' self-esteem, but also um, teach them how to think critically, right? Because I think that was a big thing to me, not um, girls not being taught how to think think critically about themselves, others, the world, and then not making good decisions, right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, so I would bring people in to talk to them. I took them places. Now, listen, Romy, nobody in my family had a business. My grandmother had a babysitting business, um, but I don't think she considered it a business. She was just babysitting for, for money, but nobody mm-hmm. in my family had ever had a business. 
So I was the first person in my family to have a business where I was getting paid and pretty decently. Mm-hmm. Again, no degree, but I'm in Chicago Public Schools working as a vendor by myself, running these groups um, mm-hmm. and introducing girls to, to Toni Morrison and Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde <laughs> and all these people. And um, yeah, did that for a very long time. And so do those girls that you see nowadays, do you do do a lot of those girls still live in the area? Are you able to see them? I am not. You know, people spread out and um mm-hmm. and but pretty frequently I'll see somebody, right? And I'll be mm-hmm. like, Lisa. Um, do they do okay? I mean, for the most part, do you think that they some of the ones kind of who, they did. A lot of them did okay. Um, a lot of them, a couple of them really exceeded my expectations. They really did. I had one young woman who I won't call her name, but she wound up having like four or five kids. And I think she was with that program until maybe her second or third one. And mm-hmm. um, whatever, something clicked inside of her at some point. And she became a nurse practitioner and is doing really, really well. Her children are doing exceptionally well. So you have, you know, young women whose lives really didn't kind of, you know, it, they went a different way and, and made some better choices and were able to kind of pull themselves out of, out of yeah. uh, bad situations. Yeah. You know, for someone who doesn't live where you live and ha- hasn't grown up in that community, what is, mm-hmm. you know, what is it that these girls are are needing the most of what is what are what are their vulnerabilities oh my gosh <laughs> um like what is the essential problem why why are they so vulnerable well, i might be able to fill in the blanks but i don't think that they would be specific to the experience that you've witnessed lack of Lack of resources, lack of compassion in their lives, um, violence being visited upon them at home, on the streets, in schools, everywhere. Mm-hmm. No space, no safe space, no mm-hmm. nurturing. And, and do you think that that is a, a widespread problem or do you think that's just a, a small section of the community? No, I think it's a widespread problem. I think, I think girls who do well, black girls who do well are the exception and not the rule. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you think that Mm -hmm. compares to black boys then? uh, Most definitely the same, same, exact. All of what I said applied to, applies to boys too. All of it. And, And where does this come from? What do you think is the, the source of this, inequity or these these areas where there is no support? And I know that's a big answer. That's a big question, but I, I have time and I'm curious what the answer is in your opinion. So I think a, there's no understating of the impact oppression has had on people's lives for generation, generation after generation after generation. Ronit, when I was working for the Young Parents Program, the teen parent program we've been talking about, mm-hmm. we would have, I, I, there were times when I would have to go out with home visitors to, to the, to the young people's, to the mom's homes. And we'll need, I would see things and I would be like, is this a third world country? Because why is there just a mattress on the floor in this living room with no sheet on it that somebody is actually sleeping on every night? Why mm-hmm. aren't, People, why are people at 10 o'clock in the morning when we get to their to these homes, why is there a big puff cloud of marijuana smoke meeting me at the front door? It's mm-hmm. 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, why are, are some of the girls' moms keeping them out of school to watch their younger children so they can go to work? Mm-hmm. So... For me, I think that there's so that question is huge, but the lack of 
basic resources, jobs, um, quality education, quality health care, um, creates a situation where, I mean, it's untenable. People can't, they, they can't manage their lives. And poverty is violent as hell. And um, it puts folks in positions to have to cope and they don't have appropriate coping mechanisms and they don't have appropriate safe space and there's nobody to help. And so people are really doing the best that they can, but that's how it looks. The best that they can is, is that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so the fact that the young women I worked with over the years, listening to their stories in, in, in those groups could put their foot, their feet on the floor in the morning. A was an act of resistance. <laughs> mm. B, powerful act of resistance. And B um, speaks to resilience in ways that I can't comprehend. I, I don't understand it. <laughs> but don't so, you see yourself as having had resilience yourself? Sure, sure. But even in, and I'm not, I want to be clear that in in my own house, there was not extreme poverty, right? Mm-hmm. There was poverty of my spirit, mm-hmm. <laughs> but not, you know what, but I, we were, you know, I was the only child. So I pretty much had things that I needed and wanted in terms of mm-hmm. material things. Um, I didn't see, you know, there were no men running out of my mother's house. There was none of that. There was... Mm-hmm. Um, family and friends and I had my own room and things like that. Stuff that I took for granted. So when I would go to these homes, I'd be like, what, what's happening here? Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a fitted sheet. Yeah. A, a top sheet. You know what I mean? A flat sheet. Comforters. You know, stuff that you don't even think about because you've always had it. Mm-hmm. That people don't even have an idea. I remember taking girls to Marshall Fields at the time. It's now Macy's in Chicago. And them being like, you know, the sample perfume on the counter. Miss Lisa, can we touch it? Uh, yeah, that's what it's there for. Mm. Never having gone to a department store before. Never. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Never having stepped outside of their neighborhood. So, um, yeah. That. So, so poverty, poverty is violent as hell. I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on that. When you don't have the basic things that you need, when everybody in your family has been poor, <laughs> meaning that um, mm-hmm. you may get, so you get, I'll just use this for an example. So maybe, you know, your mom is on food stamps or getting public aid. And we know that public aid, but public aid was decimated um, during the Clinton administration. And um, now you have to meet certain criteria to, to get it. It doesn't change no, no matter how many kids you have or any of that. So your mother gets four forty-five a month in cash and then the in food stamps. Um, and um, whatever she's getting in food stamps by the mid by mid month, maybe you don't have any more food, right? <laughs> uh, depending on how many people mm-hmm. are in the house. Um, so then you're depending on food from school. You come to school hungry. You can't concentrate in class. <laughs> because uh, your stomach's growling, uh, your clothes may not be getting washed. Um, people may be teasing you about the fact that your, you know, your clothes are older or, or you know, not the cleanest or whatever. Um, you don't have bus fare sometimes to get to school, so those days you miss school. Um, there are mm-hmm. lots of people in your house uh, be- for whatever reason, um, and. You may not be able to sleep, go to bed at night and get the proper rest. Um, lack of glasses. Uh, you, you're not getting eye exams, so you can't even see. <laughs> uh, all those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, that's what I mean about about violence. I mean, about poverty being so violent in people's lives. I mean, it strips away your ability to to get the basic things that you need so that you can do these other things so that you can excel in school so that you know that you can 
go to college and have those kinds of dreams. I mean, you don't even, you don't, you don't have, you, you can't, your view of life is so limited because all you're always in survival mode, always. And, mm-hmm. and then you're angry mm-hmm. too, because this is your life and it's blight, like nothing but blight. You live in neighborhoods where there is no mm-hmm. grass. There are abandoned homes. There's glass on the street from somebody's car windows getting, you know, busted out. Um, there's violence, literal violence, shootings in your neighborhood on a regular. You might have lost numerous people in your family and friends. So where's the hope for something different? Mm-hmm. How do you? How does that create it in somebody? That's what I mean when I say violence is, I mean, when poverty is violent, because it is (laughs) when you can take somebody, Mm -hmm. when, when you don't have what you need, you don't, you don't even have a a vision for a life because all you're doing is all Mm -hmm. you can do is think about today, this moment. Can I get something? Am I going to be able to eat today? You know, trying to go to school and people shooting on the block and how does one operate like that? Truly, how mm-hmm. does one flourish? How does one dream? What you dreaming about? Because your life is a nightmare, mm-hmm. and the lives of probably the generations before you have been too. Because you never got ahead. You never. Mm-hmm. You, there was never any way to kind of. I mean, you're talking about intractable poverty, generations of poor people. There are families in Chicago right now who don't have a first generation high school graduate. And people wonder why when when black kids graduate from high school or from grammar school or from kindergarten, parent there's parents in there with flowers, limos, because in some of our families, that is not something that's that's happened. So they go over the top. <laughs> I mean, you got little kids mm-hmm. graduate from kindergarten and they and they leaving out of the auditorium with arms full of roses. What? You just graduated from kindergarten. What are you doing? So it's just really interesting, Roni, um, and sad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So where's the, where do you even begin? I mean, what do you think? uh, I know money is needed. Um, What, what can people do? I mean, what, is needed to even help. What's needed to, to help is that the recognition of black people's humanity and the, and the desire to, to end, um, to provide resources. And when I say recognition of humanity, I think you have to recognize that people are human before you can, before you even willing to do anything to help them. And I think um, when you look at the numbers mm-hmm. of people who are di- who died from COVID across the country, overwhelmingly, it's been black people, black men. And so mm-hmm. this really po- highlights for me what I've been saying. I've been sounding the alarm for years. We're more chronically ill than other people. Why? Why? <laughs> you don't have to do anything but drive through our neighborhoods and see some of our neighborhoods and see why. No grocery stores. Um, mm-hmm. No real businesses that can, um, you know, employ people. Substandard schools. There's nothing. So uh, that impact on your mm-hmm. on your physiology when you're walking through that every day, the chronic stress breaks your body down. It impacts every system. So yeah, we're sick. Yes, we have asthma. Yes, we have lupus more than other people. <laughs> yes, we have hypertension, diabetes, cancers, mm-hmm. kidney disease. Of course, makes sense to me. So I think the recognition of humanity first mm-hmm. and then uh, the provision of, of, of resources, people being interested in, in, in changing the game. Because I know for sure in Chicago, there's, a, there's a, a suburb called Highland Park. You fly over it if you're coming from the east. And in Highland Park, you see all these pools and beautiful homes and mansions, and it's white. And then when I, I would I would mm-hmm. fly over that uh, when I worked for United, and, and then get on the train to come through, like Inglewood, to go home, and see the exact opposites 
on the train in certain neighborhoods. It's like night and day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so segregation in Chicago is mm-hmm. horrific. And, um, you know, there's no one, there's no wonder to me, um, a mystery to, to why we are the sickest and how that plays out. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You do mental health work now with individuals, right? Yep. So yes, when ma'am. did you uh, become more of a one-on-one counselor? So I went back to school. I started going, I went to a community college called Harold Washington, named after uh, Chicago's first black mayor. Um, mm-hmm. And took a bunch of, you know, prereqs mm-hmm. there. And then I went ahead and went to Roosevelt University um, in 2004 and uh, got my license after I did the, the, the number of hours you need to complete before you can do that, before you can sit for the licensing test. And I uh, got my license and started private practice shortly thereafter. So it's so interesting how 16, mm-hmm. I knew what I wanted to do. And then all these things happened. I went through all of that and got all of that experience. And at the time, you're not thinking, you're like, oh my God. I mean, I remember, I remember thinking, I'm never going to be able to, 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 to complete my, you know, to get to that place where I can do that work. And just going through a lot of kind of difficulty within myself and struggling with my self-esteem and whether or not I was going to be able to, to have a life that I wanted. And... Mm-hmm. And then it happens. And your mom, how is your mom these days? My mom is good. Mother is very yeah. active and um, still 70 years old and wears five and a half inch heels and <laughs> uh, <laughs> likes to be outside at the malls and doing different things. My mother's and our relationship is so different now. I, we are really very close, uh, close with boundaries that <laughs> uh, you know um, uh-huh. me, I, that I needed to set. But we, we are very intentional about this relationship at this point. She knows my grievances. I know hers. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. that, I mean, that was, and that took, that was a course of time, obviously. But, um, and interestingly, mm-hmm. love, interest, interestingly enough, one of my specialties is mother-daughter conflict, because I understand it from a very <laughs> Well, of course, right? Space. You're an expert. <laughs> Well, if you ask a therapist why they went into a particular area, you can almost count on it that, you know, they have experience, right? Yep. Um, And your mom, does she still go to that church? Oh, no. She is free from bondage in her life. She is very much at a normal church with normal people doing normal things. (laughs) (laughs) If you talk to her her about it, she'll be like, she's always, she's always told me, Lisa, a lot of this is because of you. I mean, you know, you really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. she still goes to church. She still, she loves Jesus, but in a normal way. <laughs> <laughs> I figured when you mentioned the five inch heels that maybe that Pentecostal church. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. My <laughs> mother wears pants, makeup, more jewelry than Sammy Davis Jr. So, yeah, she's, she's good. <laughs> um, so- do you, um, do you, can you talk just a moment in the time we have remaining about the movie, the, the documentary you're working on and where listeners can find information about you? Sure. Um, I need to say this real quickly though, uh, Ronit, um, my own therapy experience happened probably around 40 for me, somewhere around there. And I was mm-hmm. with somebody, I was with, a, I went to see a therapist, uh, this Jewish guy, um, mm-hmm. Um, and I went to see him cause I was in these relationships with these guys I liked, but you know, couldn't manage to keep them. So I was like, Oh, I'll go three mm-hmm. times. He can just tell me what I need to do and I'll be better. Wound up going to him for almost three years straight, three or four years. straight. <laughs> <laughs> he changed my life. <laughs> excellent therapist, mm-hmm. excellent therapy experience. And mm-hmm. really, really then I knew this is the, I, this is the work that I, I must do because his work mm-hmm. with me transformed my life. Without without mm. Ross, I would not be here today in this mm-hmm. way. So uh, I need to say that. But um, so I did a documentary in 2016 called "What's Left Behind," and it highlights surviving family members of gun uh, murder victims in Chicago. 
And what mm-hmm. brought me to that work was uh, a research project that I was a research assistant for for the University of Illinois at Urbana, where we were talking to women who lived in certain neighborhoods about the impact of living in dangerous neighborhoods on your health. So it was it was part survey and part gen- uh, genomics. So they took their blood mm-hmm. and we did a survey with them to see how their immune system was functioning. Was it impaired? Mm. Long story short, most of those women's immune systems were not functioning uh, normally. Um, and during the survey, a lot of them talked about losing husbands, cousins, sons, whoever, to gun violence. And my my thought was, well, where are you getting, how are you processing this? Where are you getting, are you getting therapy? And they were like, no, I got to go into work the day after the funeral because I had to. Mm. And so mm. I really wanted to look at what's left behind. Like what happens when you come back home and that person's not there anymore. And uh, so we talked to 15 families and I went in there thinking I'd do 20 minutes each and they wound up being three hours or more a piece each interview. <laughs> um, mm. People had a whole lot to say when you, when you engage people and you ask them how they feel and you give them space to tell you, they're going to tell you. So, yeah. um, so yeah. I wound up do, doing that and, and talking to um, Dr. Carl Bell, who's this, prominent black uh, psychiatrist who recently passed away about the impact of living um, through trauma. Um, So the film was completed probably in 2017. We did a trailer showing at um, the University of Chicago SSA um, for Mm -hmm. the panel. And we're still working on the editing and finishing it up. And there's some other things that I want to, now I want to add some more interviews with some different people in it. So we're still working on Mm -hmm. it. Um, Hopefully it'll be complete. Um, I really want to say by the end of this year, maybe the fall, we're working on that now. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. Um, and you can look it up on it's, um, uh, what's left behind project and people can find me to www.lisabutlerlcsw.com. And there's my website. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you very much for being here and for sharing your story. I'm really glad you were. My pleasure. Um, I love you. I love your podcast. And I think um, I'm hopeful that my story will inspire other people and, and let and give folks the idea that you can do whatever you want to do at the moment you decide to do it, uh, especially women. So, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.